Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is now our last episode in this 24-part class on how we got the Bible. To be honest, it could easily be 30 or 40 episodes, but uh, we had to end it somewhere, right? Today, after a quick review and an appeal to learn the biblical languages, I'll recommend a number of Bible translations. Although, to be honest, I'm hesitant to do this. So many have written in asking for it that I think I would be negligent if I avoided making some recommendations in this last episode. Additionally, you'll get a list of seven verses that you can use to check out translations and gauge their accuracy. Here now is episode 353, part 24 of our Bible class, Recommended Bible Translations. This class is called How We Got the Bible, Transmission and Translation. And I realize that a number of you are probably interested in what versions I recommend, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I'd like to take a moment here to review and summarize some of what we've looked at as we've gone along in the 23 previous episodes, rounding out here in number 24. Now, why transmission? Why is transmission important? Well, look, it doesn't matter how good your translation skills are. If you have an incorrect text that has been transmitted to you, you are not going to have an accurate translation. So the, the transmission of the text in you know, all these different manuscripts that we've looked at is just as important as the translation of the text, then vice versa. You can have the most accurate text so beautifully copied and compared and reconstructed that it goes right back to the, the earliest that it can possibly be and then totally fumble the ball when it comes to translation by inserting all kinds of bias or just getting words wrong that really means something else and so on. So these are two equally important parts. And so when it comes to looking at the transmission of the text, what we saw in the first six episodes, episodes one through six, was that the text of the Hebrew Old Testament has been transmitted through these different manuscript traditions has been translated through the Masoretic text in particular. That's the, the big, largest number of texts that we have today. But also, we have the Septuagint tradition of texts, and then we have the Samaritan Pentateuch. So these are really the three main different streams of sources of the Hebrew Old Testament. And then if we want to add a fourth to that, there are some unaligned, as they call them, Dead Sea Scrolls that don't line up with the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, or the Samaritan Pentateuch. So you might want to have a fourth category there, the unaligned Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, so much of this work is still underway right now. The people that are comparing these different manuscripts to each other, they're, they're producing new versions right now as I speak. So it's exciting to see how, as time goes on, we are getting a better and closer understanding of what the earliest forms of the manuscripts were like so that we can have better accuracy. Then in episodes 7 through 12, we looked at the text of the Greek New Testament. Basically there, what we looked at was the whole issue of a critical Greek text, and we saw that there were three main ones. The Nestle Alon text, 
the United Bible Societies, and the Tyndale House. Now, the United Bible Societies and the Nestle Elan, to be honest, they're basically the same. They're almost identical. Uh, whereas the Tyndale House is a different Greek text, and they have different philosophies guiding how they are determining which manuscripts are to be preferred in this or that verse. And so that really is the number one question you want to ask yourself when it comes to New Testament sources. Then we um, took a look at translation. And in episodes 13 through 17, we looked at translation accuracy. We looked at uh, how translation theory works. We looked at dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence, these different philosophies, as well as a number of different decisions that translators make at the outset, and uh, how gender, for example, has in influenced translation over the years. And this put us in a good position to evaluate three translations. We looked at the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson, the Passion Translation by Brian Simmons, very similar translation philosophies, both single translator editions that are very loose with the text. And then we looked at, uh, in the next episode, the King James Version and how a committee of 54 Anglican scholars under the authorization of King James of England put together this Bible in the 17th century. So after this, we spent about uh, six episodes looking at bias in popular evangelical translations. And my point throughout that, uh, which I try to hammer over and over and over again, is that we don't want to inject interpretation into our translation of, of the Bible. We don't want to inject our own beliefs into Scripture. No, we want to build our own beliefs on top of Scripture, uh, not bake them in. Uh, and this is especially important where the Hebrew or the Greek is ambiguous. It could go multiple different ways. And I believe that you should preserve that ambiguity in your English translation so that people can then do the work of figuring out what way is more likely to be accurate. This way, people are empowered to understand the Bible. We saw the value of using translations from different perspectives to spot bias. And I'm going to come back to this because I do want to recommend to you some translations not to use and some translations to use as well. However, to be, to be honest, most of us are probably capable of learning to read the Bible ourselves. Did you hear me? This whole class is really the second half. has been all about translations and I, I've, I've gone on and on about translations, but I believe that most of us can read the Bible. Most of us probably don't need a translation. Now, here's a question. Why hand to others something so important as translating the Bible? Why would you give somebody else that role? Why not learn one or both of the biblical languages yourself? I mean, we live in a time of unprecedented leisure. We watch hours of TV shows and movies per day. We spend countless hours scrolling through social media or engaged in you know, engrossing video games or reading fictional novels, right? We have so much disposable time. And what are we doing with it? We're just entertaining. I mean, I'm not against entertainment or against all these things I just mentioned. It's just they're not as important as having an, a direct sense of communication with Scripture, to be able to read it directly without depending on somebody else's filter they're putting between you and the Bible. 
Meanwhile, let's be honest, many of us, we hardly even pick up our Bibles. You know, we spend hours scrolling through this and that, uh, and the Bible just sits there on the shelf collecting dust. If we do pick up the Bible, for many of us, unless that Bible is artificially sweetened or enhanced with emotional language that pulls on our heartstrings, we're just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to read this. And uh, we check out mentally or we just put it down. But we live in the golden age of information access. I mean, there's nothing that's going to make the Bible more exciting to you than actually reading it yourself. So you can find a Greek class online. You can ask a local synagogue to learn Hebrew. You can buy a course to watch that'll come on uh, your computer and you can go along episode by episode. You know, the Italians have a saying, traditore, traditore. It's very hard for me to hear the difference there, but it means translator, traitor. And it's said in reference originally to translations of Dante's masterpiece of Italian literature. So Dante's Divine Comedy was getting translated into all these other languages, and, and every translator of the Italians is saying, you're a traitor! You have betrayed the beauty of the Italian language because the way Dante Alighieri wrote his book there are all these sounds and, and rhythms and rhymes and everything that fits together in Italian that doesn't communicate in other languages like English. How much more so with Hebrew? How much more so with Greek, where you, you want to get the full flavor of what's going on? Uh, Muslims insist that their Bible be read in Arabic. And I know not everybody holds to that, and there are English translations, but generally speaking, they strongly push for their people to learn this foreign language. It doesn't matter if you're not an Arab. It doesn't matter if you don't speak Arabic. They want you to learn it. Their prayers are all in Arabic, and you have to read the Bible in Arabic. Jews, they read their Bible in Hebrew. Even to this day in the synagogues, you want to sit in a service, they're going to read it in Hebrew, and then they're going to translate it into the language of the people. And if you want to become an adult, in a Jewish setting, you're going to have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, and they're going, to, they're going to force you to read the Hebrew out loud in front of all your, not just read it, sing it out loud in front of all of your relatives and other people that are there. What about, what about us as Christians? You know, are we, what are we, just lazy? Oh no, we got all these English translations. I think it's great that we have English translations. I think it's great that we, as Christians, are so missionary-minded. But at the same time, if you have the time, this is my impassioned appeal to you, if you have the time and you're able to, why not start learning a biblical language? Why not? Why not do it? Uh, now, if you have a learning disability, I understand. You know, if you, if you have a legitimate reason and you have too many responsibilities or too much is going on right now, uh, I, I understand I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty who can't do it. I'm just saying if you can do it, why not do it? And uh, most of us, if we're really honest, we just simply lack the motivation to do the hard work. Uh, you know how old William Tyndale was when he started learning Hebrew? He wasn't five years old. He wasn't 18 and, you know, in high school or 22 and, in, and working on his college degree. No, 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 no. William Tyndale, he started not until he was 32 years old. From a, a lot of people's perspective, oh, once you're in your 30s, you can't, you can't learn new things or whatever. Nonsense. 
He started at 32. He worked on it for a few years. Now, Tyndale obviously is at a different level than most of us. You know, he got to eight, eight languages. It's pretty impressive, right? But Hebrew was his eighth. And I'm convinced Hebrew is the hardest. <laughs> so what does that tell you? It tells you that, that you're not too old to learn Hebrew. You're not too lear- old to learn Greek. If you do, then over time, you'll be able to read the Bible, the original Bible, not just a translation. So that's, that's my little, I just wanted to plug that because I know that it has enhanced my life a lot to be able to read the original Bible. You know, as time goes on, you get better at it. In the early days, you're really limited and it takes so much time just to make one verse out and you have to keep looking at the dictionary and that's just so annoying. (laughs) But over time, you get better at it and it's worth it. So that's my appeal to you. In the meanwhile, while you're working on your language skills, what translation should you use? I want to make some recommendations, okay? First off, I want to to mention of uh, the Jewish Bibles, okay? I think you should have a Jewish Bible. Uh, first of all, the Jew, as I mentioned before, and I think it was episode five, the Jews, you know, they know the, they know the language better than we do. To be, I mean, let, let's be honest, they do. Uh, maybe you could find some exceptions to that, sure. But generally speaking, the Jewish people, they know Hebrew, they know the Masoretic text, they're really good at reading it. And so they've come out with some really great translations. I personally would recommend the JPS translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation of 1985. Uh, not the old one from like 1917. That one's pretty much useless. But like the 1985 edition, and you know they've done uh, a little bit of updates on study notes and stuff like that. But the text itself hasn't really changed much from that. The downside of Jewish Bible translations, to be honest, is that they don't take into consideration the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, or really the Dead Sea Scrolls. They just translate the Masoretic text. Most Jewish people believe that the Masoretic text is the text, and these other things are just mistakes. And so they don't really interact with a lot of textual criticism. However, the JPS does do that in the footnotes. And so that's why I recommend the JPS over a lot of these other versions. There are several others that I looked at in this class that you also might want to get. Uh, And that's just for the Old Testament. Now, on the evangelical side, if we're looking at the whole Bible, on the evangelical side of the equation, I personally use the ESV for a literal translation. I think it does a, a great job, the English Standard Version. Um, and then for dynamic equivalence, I use the Net Bible, the NET. I think they're both, uh, you know, at, at the top of their game as far as literal and as far as dynamic. I no longer use the NASB. It's from 1995. Uh, it doesn't seem to have as many places where it takes into consideration the Dead Sea Scrolls and other discoveries. It's, it's, it's getting to be a little bit dated now as far as that stuff goes. So. Uh, I would recommend upgrading from an NASB to an ESV if you are looking for a literal translation or taking a look at the the Net Bible. The Net Bible is so great, not as much because of the translation, but because of the footnotes, and they're just spectacular. Uh, So I would would definitely recommend either of those. And there are a bunch of other good evangelical Bibles, too. I just wanted to limit myself to two. From the Catholics, I would recommend the New American Bible. It's a great translation. It falls more in the dynamic equivalence side of the fence. But because it's from a Catholic perspective, it really is helpful to see how they look at things differently than these evangelical translations. And then certainly you, you need to have the NRSV. Uh, this is the big fancy uh, Oxford annotated version. You don't have to get that. It's, a lot of times the uh, notes in there are very, very liberal. Uh, but at least the text of the NRSV you need to have just because 
it does offer a different perspective and by and large is an excellent translation. It's, it's very literal, but it, it does take into consideration a lot of the more recent discoveries that have been, that have been found. And as time goes on, I, I, I hear they're, they're updating the uh, NRSV. Uh, actually, one of my professors, one of my New Testament professors is on the team that's doing that work. And uh, I also heard somewhere they're, they're updating the NASB. I mentioned that earlier in this class. The NET is newly updated. The original was 2005. This is a 2017 edition here. Basically, my goal would be to get translations that are from different perspectives so that you can compare them to each other. If you, if you get five translations, but they're all evangelicals, guess what? You just heard the same thing five times. Now, a word about using translations. When you quote a Bible translation online, or in a teaching, you're endorsing that translation, that version. Did you know that? Did you know that when people hear you uh, quote a version, or like let's say on social media you cite a version, or you just cite a verse, and then it puts like the, the little abbreviation for the version, everyone sees that. You're signaling to people, I think this translation of the Bible is a good translation. This is especially problematic with some of our looser translations that inject huge amounts of bias into their translation. And so I would not quote from the Message Bible. I just wouldn't do it. Unless I put very clearly that I don't endorse this translation or that I don't recommend using it, unless you're an expert in the original languages. Uh, I don't quote from the Passion Translation. I don't quote from the New Living Translation. Now the New Living Translation has gotten better. The 96 version was really bad. Uh, they had an update in 2004 and then more recently another update and with each subsequent update the NLT has actually improved quite a bit in its accuracy. But as we saw looking at the five episodes on bias in this class, the NLT drops the ball over and over when it comes to translating theological issues, injecting them into the text, and not giving the reader a footnote to tell them what just happened. Uh, so I don't recommend the NLT. Uh, to a lesser degree, the NIV. The NIV uh, has also gotten better. The 1984 and then now the 2011 uh, has, has corrected a ton of problems. So many people criticize the NIV in the uh, 90s and the 2000s um, that the, the committee that does the NIV fixed a lot of the problems that, that people had criticized. So even just looking up online criticisms about the NIV, a lot of times you look at the more recent NIV and they're not valid, whatever the criticism was. Uh, still, I, I wouldn't use the NIV uh, because it does still inject quite a bit of bias, especially when it comes to uh, the subject of who Jesus is and the Spirit and these kinds of things that we looked at. Uh, but it's also problematic when you quote from outdated versions like the King James Version and the New King James Version. Uh, so some think, for example, that the New King James Version is modern because it was done in 1982. So the King James Version, 1611 originally, updated in 1769. And then the New King James is 1982. All right, well, here's the problem with that. The New King James Version did not use the best Greek manuscripts available in the year 1982. No, they used the same Textus Receptus manuscripts tradition that the King James Version used. This is very problematic. Uh, so even though it is in modern English, the textual basis is still hopelessly outdated. It's medieval as opposed to much earlier when we get our best and earliest manuscripts. Now look, if you disagree with my assessment of, of any of these versions, that's one thing. And, and we can argue and discuss that. And I, I freely admit that 
you know, maybe I was too harsh here or I, I should have been harsher on this other one, whatever. We can discuss that. But if you agree that these versions, uh, especially the loose translations and the outdated ones, are fraught with bias or outdated because of they're using me medieval manuscripts, then you shouldn't use them when you quote the Bible, when you quote it to other people in particular is what I'm thinking of. And what so many of us do is, is we, we'll, we'll, look at, we'll look for a verse and then we'll scroll through. We'll scroll through a number of translations on a website, for example, or in a Bible app, and we'll find a translation that puts the verse in a way that we like. That's just not a good methodology. Your personal taste is no guarantee for truth, right? The question is not, does this speak to me? Or is this exciting and fresh? But is this accurate? We're talking about the Bible here. If it's inspired by God, as I believe it is, then this is the single most important book on the planet. It's not to be tampered with. It's not, it's not uh, a trivial matter to spin it this way or nudge it that way. It's, it's an important matter. The Bible is, for me, authoritative for my life. It determines my beliefs and my practices. It's, you can't play games with it just to make it more exciting. Uh, this is huge. It's, it's not like ice cream flavor. You know, you like cookie dough, I like uh, peanut butter cup, whatever. Who cares? Bible translation is not like that. <laughs> this is something that really matters and it's something that really does have an objective side to it. Uh, furthermore, what drives me nuts if I could just be honest for a moment, what drives me nuts is what I see in the bookstores. Not just Christian bookstores, but just regular bookstores as well, uh, or marketing online to buy Bibles online. What we see is not people giving helpful information about different Bibles that you can compare to each other, but, I mean, like, for example, they, they could tell you, oh, this Bible's translated from, you know, this Hebrew or this Greek or this one handles gender in this way, and, and this one uses God's name instead of translating it out, or this translation has worked really hard to limit bias by doing this or that, right? These, these kinds of really useful things. That's not how Bibles are advertised. They're advertised based on the font they use, based on the color of the cover and the design of the cover. They're advertised based on the endorsement of a pastor celebrity or how it has lines in the margins for you to take notes. That's what advertisers draw your attention to when you're going to a Bible. And it drives me nuts because it's like, I don't care what color the Bible is. Is it accurate or not? And if, it's, it, if it is accurate, then even if it has an ugly cover, I prefer it to something that's trendy and cool and is going to get uh, looks from my friends when I go to church or something. Um, who cares, right? Is it accurate? Does it contain the words of God or is it a distortion? Also, how can you know whether they've taken liberties? I suggest that when you're going to buy a Bible, whether you're looking at the ones that I already mentioned or you're looking at something else because these, this whole situation is constantly changing and the NA29 is going to come out and then there's going to be a new New Testament. The uh, HBQ is going to come out. There's going to be a new Old Testament. It's just a matter of time until, you know, as time goes on, we get closer and closer to the oldest form of the scriptures that we can possibly read. The question is, what are you going to do? Read the preface. Read the preface. I know it's boring. I know it's, it's somewhat technical, but this is, what it, this is where the Bible translators 
have to tell you what it is they think they're doing, what sources they're using, what uh, decisions they made at the outset. Read the stupid preface with that small print, <laughs> okay? If you do that, you'll know where that Bible is coming from and you'll be able to judge it a lot better. Also, while you're reading along in whatever version you happen to use, check for footnotes. Use the footnotes. Does it tell you where there's a translation or manuscript issue? That matters. Look at it. Take a look at the footnotes. And uh, as far as, I was thinking of, of uh, uh, helping people that don't have necessarily all the resources that I have to figure out like, well, how do I, Sean, what's a quick verse I could look at to assess, does this version use the best Greek New Testament editions? Or does this version use the best Dead Sea Scrolls or set, does, it, does it incorporate the Septuagint? And so I put together a list of verses for you to consider here. You can look up any Bible, check out these verses and see what you see there. Uh, for example, Genesis 4.8, Cain says, let's go into the field. Check and see, does your Bible say that? Does it say, let's go into the field? Because this is a case where the Masoretic text does not have those words in it. It just says, Cain said to Abel, and then it ends the sentence. And then the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, the Syriac, and the Vulgate, they all have these extra words in it. So that's something to check. Is your Bible slavishly following the Masoretic text or does it have the guts to use older sources that deviate from the tradition? Isaiah 53, 11, very similar kind of issue. He shall see light should be there in the text, not he shall see it. And that's because the older manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, have light there, not it. 1 Samuel 14, 41, does it say Urim? Not urine, not P. Urim. Uh, the uh, rock or whatever it was that they used to cast lots. Let me, let me show you this one. 1 Samuel 14, 41. I'm comparing the NASB to the ESV. And you can see the NASB follows the Masoretic text over against uh, other evidence that has clearly had a mistake in it, uh, whereas the ESV follows the Septuagint in this case. It reads on the, from the NASB, Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, and then it skips a huge section, and then it says, give Thummim, which they translate, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. However, the ESV translates it as follows. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. What happened here? I can show you exactly what happened here. The first instance of the word Israel occurs in the beginning of the verse. Uh, then you have a second instance, and then you have a third instance down here towards the end of the verse. The scribe's eye skipped from the first instance of Israel to the second, or actually the third instance of Israel, and he missed out the parts in between. This is totally standard when you're copying stuff. It's a, it's a the kind of mistake that's easy to spot. Whereas the Septuagint working from a different earlier set of Hebrew manuscripts had the middle part that described the Masoretic text mix, missed out. So that's another verse to take a look at. Here's another one, Psalm 145, verse 13. This one's fascinating. Check your version. Is it two verses? Is it two sentences or just one? 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Syriac all have an extra line there that the Masoretic text does not have. So, for example, Psalm 145 is one of these acrostic psalms where every letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, begins a new line. And uh, the letter none is missing. The letter none is none. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's missing from the psalm. And so the Masoretic text doesn't have, you know, it's, it's pretty clear it's missing a verse. Whereas the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is much older, uh, the Septuagint also is older than the Masoretic text, the Syriac translation all have this extra uh, sentence in it that some translations are going to put in and others are not going to put in. Then there's the question of Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 and John 7, 53 to 8, 11, these two important uncorrected corruptions that exist. How does your Bible translation deal with it? Does it print it? Is it honest? Does it have a footnote? Does it put brackets around it? That's important to look at. And then what about Revelation 22 verse 19? Does it say tree of life or does it say book of life? If it says book of life, guess what? Your translation is not using accurate manuscripts for the book of Revelation. Revelation 22:19 in the oldest manuscript says tree of life. And then last of all, just to throw in one of our examples from bias in translation, in Matthew 2:2, 2, 2, does it say pay homage when the magi come to King Herod and they say we saw his star, we have come to pay homage to the king of Israel? Or does it say worship him? Does it does it unnecessarily inject a religious context into something that is obviously royal in its original setting? So these are some verses for you to check out, uh, just spot check. One, one other thing I wanted to mention is that you really need to get the latest version of whatever translation you're using. So for example, the NIV has the 1984. Well, that's, that's not going to be as good as the 2011 version or the NET. I had the 2005 until I started teaching this class and then I realized there's a new version out. It's 27, so I got the new version of that. Uh, the ESV is funny because uh, there's a 2001, a 2007, a 2011, a 2016, and a 2017 edition of the ESV. And who knows if there will be others, right? So if you're, say for example, buying your Bible at a garage sale or a used bookstore, you really do want to check and see, is it an updated version? Because what is the point of updates? The point of updates is not to invent new stuff, it's to correct errors, it's to do things better. Right? And so as time goes on, we're getting closer, we're getting a better, more accurate understanding. I did also want to mention to those of you who use BibleWorks, the software, uh, that in their software, if you uh, look up the NET, it's going to give you the old version. It doesn't have the new version in it. Uh, same thing with the ESV. If you're re reading the ESV in BibleWorks, uh, which BibleWorks went out of business a couple years ago, uh, but they only have the 2016 edition, not the 2017. And so it might be time if you're a BibleWorks person to switch to Accordance or Logos or use just websites like normal people um, and access your translations that way. So there are other areas of further research. This class is already 24 episodes. We're already getting late into this episode. I just want to point these out. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to point them out. One is inspiration theories. There are a number of different ways of thinking about how God inspired the Bible to be written, and that's a whole subject unto itself, and it's worth considering, but we didn't get a chance to look at in this class. It would be something worth uh, thinking through. Another is apologetics, like how do we know 
that the Bible's true in the first place. That's a whole nother field, and it is really important, but we didn't get a chance to look at it in this class. And then last of all, canon, uh, which is the question, how do we know which books belong in the Bible? How do we know that the books that they said aren't Bible, really aren't properly fitting into the scripture, and that um, there aren't extra ones in that shouldn't be there. And that's the whole subject of canon. And once again, that's a whole nother field. It's really important, uh, but we didn't have time to get into it. Uh, I might, at some point, turn this class into a book. If I do, I'll be sure to delve into these other areas of importance and include them because they are significant subjects. But I did just want to mention further areas for you to study if, if you are interested in this. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this class. I hope it helped you understand this amazing book, or really library of books, that we call the Bible. And I hope this class enabled you to become a more discerning reader of the Bible. And that's it for me. Uh, thanks for joining me in this quest to understand how we got our Bibles. Well, that's it for this class. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, come on to restitutio.org and find episode 353 on recommended Bible translations. I did want to point out that I have a lot of info in the show notes for this episode, which you can get online at restitutio.org or just in your device. If you're listening to this through a podcast app, uh, you can usually access the show notes. I've got the list of seven verses to check for translation accuracy. I've got a list of one, two, three, four, five recommended translations, uh, three translations to avoid, three outdated translations, and a couple of other links. So take a look at that if you're interested. If you've enjoyed this class, can you do me a favor? Please share it with others. I've got all of these episodes in both audio and video format. They are slightly different. Uh, the video doesn't have the info at the end of each episode, so it's a little shorter. Whether you use YouTube or a podcast app or you just want to share a link to the website, Rest Studio, uh, please help get the word out if you've enjoyed this material. Uh, so much of this is unknown, uh, as, as a commenter pointed out earlier this week. So much of this is unknown among Christians and can help dispel so much confusion about what the Bible really says and doesn't say. And, and by the way, thanks to all of you who have written in with encouragement. Uh, thanks to those who have shared episodes on social media. And thanks to those who have supported this ministry financially while this project was underway. Starting next week, we'll be going back to our regular publication schedule of only one episode per week, releasing on Thursday evenings. And I've got some interesting interviews planned with people who share their perspective and experience to encourage and challenge you, including the scholar-apologist Josh Anderson. You might recall him from the evangelism seminar that we played out a number of months back. Old Testament professor Bob Jones is going to share about his life and his passion about the Old Testament. Uh, the previous president of the Atlanta Bible College, David Krogh, honestly, he's done about every job that you can do. Uh, at the denominational and at the Bible college level for the Church of God. David Krogh is going to share about his life. And then Russell Brown is going to talk to us about Black Lives Matter. Uh, since he's both African-American and a police officer, he, and, well, and he's also half-white. So he sees this situation from three different perspectives. It has a, really, a truly three-dimensional point of view on it. And uh, he's going to give us an insider perspective on Black Lives Matter, as well as COVID-19, since he recently had the coronavirus, 
and recovered from it a couple weeks back and knows what it's like. So uh, stay tuned for that. Russell Brown, can't wait for that. But for next time, I'm hoping to do a podcast-exclusive episode. This won't be on YouTube, but just on the podcast on Biblical Unitarian Translations with Dr. Jerry Weirwell, who is himself a professional translator. Uh, And this will give us an opportunity to consider the OGF-OMMT, One God, the Father, One Man, Messiah translation, the KGV, the Kingdom of God version, the NEV, the New European version, the Diaglot of Benjamin Wilson, the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the REV of Spirit and Truth Fellowship. So I'm not 100% sure when we can get that episode done, but I'm hoping for next Thursday. Uh, Stay tuned for that. But that's enough for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can give at restitudio.org. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so. Uh, If you have an iPhone, just in the native podcast app that they use, you can do it in Podcast Addict or CastBox in Android phones. Or if you're a Spotify person, just look Restitutio up in Spotify. You can get it right there. See you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.